take your Bibles and look over at this passage in Luke. We will be looking We will look at, be looking at the second coming of Jesus today. And eschatology has taken a real hit lately, hasn't it? Uh, the study of end times is something that many in the evangelical church have um, kind of turned their back on and decided we're not going to talk about it anymore. A lot of it is a reaction to the uh, series of books. Uh, y'all all know, and I won't even mention the title, uh, a long series of fiction books uh, that talk about being left behind, something like that. And, and from that... <laughs> There has been kind of an overreaction from uh, many of the conservative evangelicals that have basically said, uh, see how this has turned into a marketing scheme. This is not what God had in mind, so let's don't talk about eschatology anymore. And and the problem with that is is that uh, the Bible talks about it all the time, (laughs) and Jesus brings it up constantly. And to talk about the end times is something we're going to deal with, especially if I preach verse by verse through the Bible. We're going to keep bringing it up because he brings it up. So we're going to have to deal with it. Um, Am I going to give you a full uh, discourse on eschatology today? No, you're not going to get that because Jesus doesn't give us a full discourse on eschatology. That's coming up, though, (laughs) later on in Luke. And then, obviously, if we do Matthew 24, uh, we'll, we'll deal with it. Uh, but in this passage today, even in today's passage, where Jesus is talking to his disciples and encouraging them, getting them ready, um, and, and making disciples, as we said, he brings up the subject in our passage in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. So, we've been studying how the Lord is graciously teaching his disciples in the midst of this huge crowd, right? He has continuously been pointing his disciples to look to him, to seek him, to trust him, to value him above everything. And last week we saw that they should think correctly about him, they should seek correctly, and they should treasure correctly, that they should treasure him above all else. What we value, as we talked about, determines who we are. What we put high on the priority scale determines what's going on inside of our hearts. If we are valuing God, then our hearts are right with Him. If we're valuing ourselves and our own personal interest, then we're probably not right with God. If we value the things of the world... I'm sorry. This is making me feedback in my ear. If we value the things of the world, then guess what's going to happen? We're going to be just like the world. Those that are not born of God value the things of the world. And those that value God and treasure God are the ones that are born again. So I question for you. How many of you want Jesus to return today? How many of you want him to come before the end of the service? How many of you would like him to come before Pastor Mike speaks? (laughs) (laughs) believe it or not you know i want him to come right now if he could come right now that would be excellent 
Are you ready for him to return? I remember, you know, especially the college age, this tough age, because you're thinking, man, I really want to be married. I want to have children. I want to have a career. Uh, I want those things. And I remember the little bit of tension in my heart. Do I, do I, would I really want him to come now, or could he kind of wait until I have all those things and, you know, have the wife and the kids? And That's a fine line there, isn't it? Aren't we even there valuing things of the world more than Christ? I think we have to be very careful with that. Christ is the most valuable thing in the world. He is to be treasured above all else, right? And we should be ready for him to return right now. And if we're ready and we're ready for him to return, then our hearts are right and we value him. Today we're going to see that the disciples of Jesus should view and how they should view the second coming. Let's look. The focus of this part of Christ's discipleship training course is being prepared for his second coming. There's a big push, as I mentioned, in evangelical circles today to ignore this doctrine of his second coming. But it's interesting that Jesus does just the opposite. He brings it up over and over and over and over. And a matter of fact, in the New Testament epistles, it continues to happen. Did you know that there's only three books in the entire Bible or in the entire New Testament that don't talk about Jesus' second coming? Only three. Galatians, 2 John, and 3 John. Those are pretty small. So most of them are talking and bring up Jesus' second returning, or, uh, second coming. The second coming is mentioned over 300 times in the New Testament. So this is not a subject that we're going to be able to avoid, and let's get right into it. The emphasis here in this passage is being ready for the second coming of Christ. And it's broken down into two sections, and, and, and Jesus develops his sermon even more and develops his discipleship training even more. And he breaks it down into an exhortation to be ready for the slaves or to be a ready slave. And then there's an exhortation to be a faithful slave in light of his return. Now, I know when we hear that word slave, uh, many of you have read MacArthur's book, Slave. And so for us to hear that is not a problem. But in our culture, to hear the word slave and the concept of slave, it's uh, horrible. Don't talk about that word slave. It has implications, right? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about this today. And he compares the disciples to slaves. And it should be something that we really shouldn't be offended by if we see things culturally correct. And we'll see it as we go along. Both of these sections are in the context of the second coming of Jesus, as I mentioned. But look at verse 40. It's a key verse that kind of gives you a highlight of what he's talking about. It says, You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, first of all, who's talking? Jesus is talking, right? And he says, The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Well, who's the Son of Man? I thought he was, because after all, he referred to himself as the Son of Man numerous times. Well, yeah, he's talking about himself, but he's talking in third person, and that happens, especially in the Bible. It's very regular for people to talk of themselves in the third person, and Jesus does it here in his sermon. Matter of fact, the word, or the, the phrase Son of Man is mentioned often in the Bible, in Psalm 8. 
it's mentioned. And then in Psalm, the Psalm 8 is then applied in Hebrews to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2. So the Son of Man is a title that Jesus loved to use. had an interesting discussion with a couple of guys at Grace on Campus this week. And the discussion was this. Does God put the interests of humans over himself? Kind of a tricky question. Does God put the interest of humans over himself? Well, no. God's all about his own glory, and he should be, right? He doesn't put the interest of others above himself. Well, then we looked at Philippians chapter 2, and it was very strange. It says, have this attitude which was also in Christ Jesus. And it appears that Jesus is the... It's looking back to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but put others' interests, count them equal to your own. So put others above yourself. So does God put our interests above his own? Trick question. Yes and no. (laughs) It's his glory and his deity, Jesus does, for his glory. But in his humanity, he, he did put... Our interests above his own. That's why he came. And he calls his, his title here, this, he loves to use this title, Son of Man. This title is one of Christ's favorite titles for himself. It is that title that says, I'm the representative of mankind. I'm the epitome, the perfect representation of mankind. I'm the representative of humanity that will then be the one that becomes the sacrifice for humanity. In caught in that phrase is Old Testament prophecies everywhere. Matter of fact, look over in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. Look at this. In Daniel chapter 7, it talks about, by the way, in the context of prophecy and in the context of his second coming, by the way, we see this here. It says Daniel 7, 13, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, which is the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that is, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Who's the son of man here? This is Jesus, a prophecy of Jesus to come. The son of man title. And Jesus uses that title. So what's he saying? I'm the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. I'm the fulfillment of all that was prophesied of me. Now... Let's, let's be perfectly honest here. When y'all see this picture of Jesus and you see these concepts, is that what you think of in Jesus' first coming? Does it look like that? Do all the people, that all the people, nations and men, every language might serve him? In his first coming, who was he talking to? Jews. How many other nations were there? Occasionally there were a few that would show up. And when he did, he says, this is for the house of the Jews. And remember the one lady, what did she say? Well, even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. 
right? The Gentiles, yeah. But his first coming was all centered around coming to the, as their Messiah. But this is talking about his new second coming. So here Jesus is talking and, and brings up the idea of his second coming. He talks about it in third person and says, I'm coming. Now this has got to be confusing for the disciples. The disciples, hey, read Matthew 24, read Luke. Uh, you know, when, when, you, when he brings up his second coming, they go, what? When's this going to happen? They're just totally confused because they're thinking what? Messiah comes, he's, it should be all together. When are you going to set this kingdom up? But there was mystery here. And here he brings up his second coming. So let's look. So today we're going to see Jesus emphasizes the importance of his disciples being ready for his second coming. And in this, the exhortation is to be a ready slave is developed into three main points. He says he gives first the call and then the promise and then the reason. So let's start with the call. In verses 35 to 36, he says, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. There are three little images that are given in this passage or pictures. And they're all calls for the disciples to be ready for his second coming, the Messiah. All three pictures are drawn from a setting of a wedding and the celebration associated with it, the wedding feast. In Christ's day, a wedding party could last for days and even a week. And the bride and the groom would not make their way home to the groom's house for up to a week's time before they got back. So what he does is he pictures the people that are left back at the groom's house waiting on the master and his bride to return home. The people back at home, the household, they're back there waiting for the master to come. And he's comparing the picture to how we should view Jesus when he comes back. That's the whole point. And he gives these three pictures. First he says, be dressed in readiness. This is a picture of people who are dressed for action. In other words, the slaves in Jesus' day would put up, pull up their long tunics and tuck them in to their belt in order that they could be ready to do work and do their service quickly when the master arrived. It kind of reminds me of when I was in Myanmar. We played some soccer with some of the guys that had loongies. Everybody there wears skirts, except for the professor. <laughs> we only read it once. But we had these things that they would tie. They didn't have much of a belt. They'd just tie them, and they were like skirts. And all the guys wore them. So we go out with these guys to play soccer. Some of them had shorts. Many of them had shorts. But a couple of the guys just couldn't afford to have shorts or anything. So they would reach down, grab their loongy, pull it up, and tuck it in. And it, they would run around with these skirts kind of folded up underneath. It was all so that they could get around and do the game, participate in it, and be able to participate well. Well, that's the same concept here. The servants need to be ready, be dressed, ready for action when 
the master comes. And a matter of fact, there's preparation that has to happen before the master and his bride gets there, right? So they're always at work, ready, active, preparing, dressed and ready. It's a beautiful picture of how we should be with the second coming of Christ. We should be prepared. That's that first image. Being prepared for the wedding feast or being prepared for the time when the Messiah would come back. Jesus uses this to picture our hearts being ready for when Christ comes back. Very important. Next we see, he says, keep the lamps lit. Now, obviously in Jesus' day, there was no electricity. So lamps were what? The way that the house stayed lit up at night. The lamp was also a way to make the house visible in the night sky. So how would the groom and the bride know where to go? It's dark. It's pitch black. So they would light the houses up. And it would be like, okay, that's where we're going. And they would keep it on, anticipating the groom to come back at any time. He could come back in the middle of the night or in the day. It didn't matter. When the party was over, they were ready. The lights were all on. The lamps were all lit. Everybody was ready for the groom to return. He keeps pointing this picture of being ready. We have this picture of a house lit up so that the groom will return to a lit house with his bride. He's emphasizing his readiness. It kind of, it's somewhat like a surprise party today, but in a kind of reverse way, right? What are surprise parties like today? Everybody in the house gets everything ready. You got your honored guests coming, right? Everybody's got everything set up. All the details are planned out. The cars are parked down the street, right? I I love surprise parties with kids, too, because they're like, they're looking out the window. He's coming. He's coming, right? He's coming. He's going to be there. He's coming up the driveway. And everybody gets prepared, and everybody honors that guest when he comes in. That's that same concept of being ready, having the house lit up, Because Christ is returning. Are we that kind of prepared for Christ? That's what he's saying. Disciples should be ready for Christ to return. He's here or he's coming. Are you ready? Well, if we keep in mind all the things that we've talked about in the previous sections and what Jesus has talked about, this would be a very important thing. Think about it. He's already talked about avoiding hypocrisy. Avoiding fearing man. If all these things are characteristic of our life, are we ready for the return of our Savior? No, if we're all about this world, then we're not ready for the return of the Messiah. We're not ready. But if we are putting those things to death, trusting God, looking to Him, then we're ready. Then he says, be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. So that... They may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. The picture here is of a house full of slaves waiting for their master with joyful anticipation. Can't wait for him to get back. We often think, and like I mentioned, that slavery is this horrific picture and practice. And it is because of what we have in our mind of American history, right? Our American culture says what? about slavery it's barbaric and it is the way that we did it it was horrific to even imagine the idea of treating people like animals like that and 
Many of them would die on ships. This is a horrific thing to even uh, comprehend. I think it ranks right up there with abortion. The slavery practice of that day was just barbaric. But this is not the image that Jesus wants to paint in this picture. And I want you to understand, you have to make sure that you look at the cultural setting for a term and don't put your cultural thinking into a passage. Because if you do, you'll miss the joy of what's in this passage. See, in Jesus' day, having a good master and being a slave was not necessarily a bad thing. It could be a privilege. See, you are a part of a household. And if your master was good, you loved your master. And he treated you good. And this is what kind of picture we have here. The master is going out to get married. And, she's, and he's coming back with his wife. That's my master. He's coming back. This is great. And there's anticipation. They can't wait for him to walk through the door. Whereas in our minds, if we're uncareful, if we're not careful, we'll put our preconceived notions into a passage like this and we'll think, how in the world could the slave be waiting for the master to come home? They were like, stay away. Don't come home. But this is a different context. This is one of the reasons why when you study your Bible, you need to do this. You ready? Take off your preconceived notions, your cultural presuppositions, and try to the best of your ability to stay with what the text says. And keep the historical grammatical approach instead of letting your preconceived notions fall in. By the way, just talking about Christ's return for a second. It falls into that same concept. How long has it been since Jesus died and rose from the dead? Thousands of years, right? Almost 2,000. At this point, we could all begin to say, wait a second, he said he was coming back. Where is he? Oh, well, maybe... He's not really coming back. Maybe that. Maybe what we need to do is just change our eschatology to allow for it only to be something when we die, we go to heaven. Right? He's not really coming back. So there's these guys that are like preterists. They're called preterists. And what they do is they say everything's already done. It's already completed. Everything in the Bible's already done. That makes sense because it's been 2,000 years. He's not back. Where is he? Right? But that's allowing your what? Your preconceived notions, your awareness of the world to interpret Scripture. Don't do that. By the way, how long was it from Noah's flood to Jesus' arrival? Hmm. Thousands of years. Could have been up to 2,000 years. How long from Adam and Eve to the flood? Thousands of years. Add up the dates. Go up. Add it up. So God doesn't always move in our time period. In Genesis 3.15, what did he say? There was going to be one that would come. So 4,000 roughly or more years later, the Messiah shows up 4,000 years before the first coming. It could very well be 4,000 years before he comes. But, we'll see here, we should think that it could happen today. We should think that way all the time, at any moment. And he even told his disciples to think that way, and that was what? How long ago? 
2,000 years ago. So should, they should be anticipating his return at any second, even then. And we should too. So, in light of our context, and we understand things properly, it's very important for us to understand that he paints this picture of slaves that love their master and can't wait for them to come back. Can't wait for the master to come back. It kind of reminds me of this week in our family. We told some really neat news. All of you get to hear it now. Uh, just don't put it on Facebook. My wife is pregnant. It was really exciting. We sat down with the kids, put them down there on the floor. They were sitting there, and we got to tell them. And the moment we told them, it was like Andrew's jaw dropped, and he went, Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's cool. And then <laughs> Julia uh, wow, <laughs> exactly. Julia ran up to mommy's belly and, in there. <laughs> and the anticipation ha- is just at a fever pitch in our house, especially for the first day or two. <laughs> and Julia almost, it, it, it was at least every hour she would come up. So, so the baby's coming before Christmas? Before Christmas? <laughs> before Christmas. And, you know, she thinks Christmas is next week. So I had to reorient. Wait, wait, it's going to be a while. But she's thinking, so she runs into her bedroom. Andrew helped her, I think, a little bit. Did you help her with that little that little bed? She made a nice little bed. Oh, she did that by herself. She made a bed for the baby in her bedroom. The baby is going to stay there. And she came out announcing, the baby's place is all ready. I got my Dora bed laid out for her or him. So it's anticipation of the arrival. That's what he's saying here. There's anticipation of the arrival of Christ. It's what we're looking forward to, right? That's why Revelation ends with, come, come. The bride says what? Come. That's what we are. We're anticipating the return of our Savior. The kind of readiness is what Jesus portrays here, is pictured with that slave-dressed and ready, and all the lights lamped, lit, and them at the door waiting with anticipation. One commentator said this about Jesus' call to his disciples. It's a call to have an attitude of expectant watchfulness. Expectant watchfulness. Okay, he could be here any minute, any second. I can't wait till he comes back. That's what our heart attitude should be all about. What would we do, by the way, if we are have this kind of attitude? If we're thinking, okay, he could be here any minute. I can't wait until he gets back. How will we live? What will our lives reflect? Well, they'll reflect chapter 12, verse 1. We'll avoid hypocrisy. We'll also, chapter 12, verse 5, we won't fear man, but we'll fear God. Verse 8, we'll confess Jesus before men. Think about this. If you know Jesus is just about to come back, who are you going to talk about? Jesus. He'll be on your lips. And you won't fear man. You won't worry about this life, will you? I mean, think about it. If you're thinking Christ could come back at any minute, are you going to focus on these material things that we have a tendency to focus on so much? No, he's coming back, so be ready. And you think on the right things. And you'll seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, not ours. 
Hearts ready for Christ's return will demonstrate lives that honor the returning master. So we've seen Jesus called the followers to be ready, like servants ready for their master's return. The obvious question is, in this room right now, are you ready for Christ's return? You can say, I'm ready because I want to get out of this body. That is a good thing. But are you ready in in light of your preparedness? Are you putting to death sin in your life? Are you seeking him? If he were to come right now, would it be one of these things when you see him, you go, I'm glad you're here, but, ooh, I wish you, I wish, hopefully not. We need to avoid hypocrisy and be ready for our Messiah. How will we view the world that determines uh, how we view our, the world determines our anticipation for Christ. If we view it greatly, we won't think about Christ for coming that much. If we view Christ greatly, the world will become less and less. Then he gives a promise. Let's look. Verses 37 to 38. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third watch and finds them, so blessed are those slaves. This word blessed is joyfully favored by God. That's what it means. Joyfully favored by God. Some say happy because God has granted grace upon us. This is the same word used in the Sermon on the Mount. The same concepts. Look at it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, joyfully favored by God, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle. Why? Because they shall inherit the earth. Jesus encourages his followers to be alert, be ready in this previous passage because there is great joy because of the future with their master in other words anticipate jesus and you you're ready and your eyes are on him and then guess what you're going to be blessed in the future the servant that will be have the attitude of expectant watchfulness will have their expectations fulfilled more than they could ever hope for by the way This will throw you for a loop. This is prosperity gospel. (laughs) Great prosperity gospel. Really? Biblical prosperity gospel. (laughs) You're listening closely. Don't misquote me. Biblical prosperity gospel has this in mind. We are going to delight and be with our Savior forever in heaven. That is a good thing. (laughs) That's biblical prosperity gospel. We have good news. We will spend time with our Messiah. We will enjoy him forever in heaven. That is good news. And it's okay to say that. What makes it distinct from the prosperity gospel that's a lie out there is is that the prosperity gospel says you will get riches here. You'll get a lot here, which is garbage, because this, we don't want it. If we were true Christians and we were hearing a prosperity gospel message, the false one, what would we stand up and say? 
Why are you offering me a motorcycle? I want Jesus. Why are you offering me riches here? I want Christ. Can you imagine what would happen in some of these gigantic churches if somebody would just stand up and say that one time? Don't give me a motorcycle. I want Jesus. That's what prosperity, that's the true enjoyment and delight in God in heaven. And we should look for that, shouldn't we? He pictures this beautifully as the master. Man, and it's, it's almost, it's, it had to be a little bit shocking to them too. Because I think it even goes against their culture a little bit. Because look how he pictures it. The master's coming, he has the groom, but here... The master comes, and what's he do? He serves them. Do you see that? Let me turn back. Look at that verse. Look. I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them, the slaves, recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. This is staggering. This is the master serving the slaves. By the way, this is putting the interest of others above themselves. Same thing as we talked about on Philippians 2, huh? Same concept. Boy, doesn't that picture... When did, he does something just like this, but before his second coming, doesn't he? When did he do that? Remember? Yeah. Ah, he washed their feet right before his death. You have this beautiful picture of the sacrifice and service of our Lord... Our master. What an amazing concept. By the way, if he humbled us himself that way, shouldn't we have that same attitude in ourself <laughs> that was in Christ Jesus? Right? If he, being God, pictures himself being the Lord that will serve his slaves, glorify us, shouldn't we put others above ourselves? Absolutely. If he... Being God does it, and he pictures himself this way. All of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior look forward to heaven because it's there we will enjoy our Savior forever, our Master. We look forward to heaven because we will be able to enjoy perfect fellowship with Christ. Just reclining at the table with him. Oh, man, what a glorious truth. And, and, and really staggering when you think about who you are. Do you understand who you are? <laughs> Remind yourself again. Think back just a little bit who you are. You were born what? Dead in your sin. Yet, who will you recline with? We will talk with Christ and know Him intimately. What a glorious truth. <laughs> Amazing. That will make you... That will help you to get your eyes off of this world, won't it? If your eyes are on this kind of thinking, Jesus compares the blessings to come with the master girding himself to serve and having them recline at his table. The problem with many of us is that we want what? Instant gratification. We want something from God now. <laughs> Give it to me now. And what we want from God is not fellowship and enjoyment of Him. We want what? We want material things. 
We want here and now. We want it here. And if we're thinking this way, how in the world can we be ready for our master to return if we're valuing the very things that we're not going to have up there? We're not going to need that. We're not going to want that. Oh, one of my, one of the, if I get to do any of your funerals, please hear me. Please don't tell me to say or have me read something that says, my dear uncle, he's up in heaven playing golf right now. My dear uncle, he's up in heaven. He loved Jesus. He's, you know, fishing, and he's caught a 10-pound bass already. Okay. Look, folks, what makes heaven great is we get to be with Jesus. We get to be and recline at the table with our master. That's what's good. We get perfect fellowship. We get to see God incarnate, Christ. Look, folks, it doesn't matter how long it takes. That's what we should be looking forward to. You've heard the phrase, you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You heard that? That's called a garbage phrase. I want you to be heavenly minded. Trust me, you'll really be good for the earth if you're heavenly minded. If your eyes are on Christ and his return and anticipating him in heaven, you're ready. You're going to act different. Trust me. People might say you're no earthly good, but that's because you won't value the things they do. You will value Christ. The world will call you no earthly good. And you will say, Jesus is good. Believe in him. And you will be good for him. They just don't know it until God works, right? We've waited and waited and waited for his return. I can't wait for him to return. Jesus even mentions this. It could be a while, but you should anticipate it coming at any time. Whether he comes in the second watch or even the third watch and finds them so, blessed are the slaves. Blessed are those slaves. The second watch was probably from 9 to 12. The third watch was from 12 to 3 in the, on the clock. So what they would do is if the groom was coming back and he was running late, the slaves were what? Still up, house lit, all the way to 3 o'clock. Doesn't matter when he comes. That's his point. It's a picture that he's trying to get across that no matter how long it takes for him to get here, we're always ready, we're always anticipating, we're always thinking it could come tonight, it could happen today, it could happen during the service. I'm ready. That's what he's getting at. Those who are ready at any minute are blessed. Now, I cannot stress this enough to you. If your whole focus is on getting the things of the world, then you're not ready. <laughs> you understand? If it's about a new car, if it's about a wife, it's a, if it's about any of those things, if your life is about those things, you're not ready. Jesus says, whether he comes back in a thousand years, two thousand years, you are ready as if it could be today. Right now, this watch. 
I find it interesting. Did you see that in the blesseds here, that it has to do with the kingdom of heaven, and they shall be comforted? By the way, were, were believers immediately comforted always when they were mourning? No, sometimes this comfort might happen where? In the future, later, maybe not even until heaven, because look, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Wait a second. Is he saying prosperity gospel now? You're going to get it now? No, he's talking about the kingdom. When Christ returns, they'll get the earth when he comes back and rules and reigns here. That's what he's talking about. And it's very interesting. It goes on. Look, in the blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Rejoice? If somebody's persecuting you, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's the idea? Again, you are favored by God. You are joyful, even in horrible circumstances, in light of what? Eternal blessings. Future blessings. Blessings you can't grab a hold of right now. You can't have it now. That's having a mind that thinks way out here. That's important. You can see why God would establish it so that Jesus could be coming back at any time to help develop that mentality. Now think about that for a second. Just stop. Think. Why did God set it up that Jesus could return at any minute? And for thousands of years it could be any minute. So that the people of God would constantly do what? Be thinking at any minute. Their minds and their hearts would be always anticipating the return of the master. By the way, even if he doesn't return in our lifetime, what happens when we die? To be absent from the God, to be present with him. To be absent from the body is to be present with him. So it's perfect preparation. Another way he could have done it would be to do this. Do you know you could die at any minute? Any second you could die, you could stop breathing. But the problem is, is we, get, we humans do what? We go like this. Well, I'm 44, I made it this long. I guess I'll probably make it to 75, you know? Look at the stats. Talk to a little kid. And they, they say, well, most of the time, kids don't die. The fact of the matter, Jesus could come back right now, by the end of the service. Children, do you realize that? At any minute, Jesus could return. Are you ready? Maybe you need to talk to your mommies and daddies. Are you ready? Important. Jesus says, he gives a reason, notice. But be sure of this, that if the head of the household had known what hour the thief was coming, then he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now, this is very interesting. Nobody ever, most people don't miss this. But if you're not good with your uh, scripture and your hermeneutics, you could really get mixed up here. Who's he comparing himself to? He's comparing himself to a thief. Jesus is comparing himself to a thief here. Why? One aspect of the thief. 
not the evil of the thief, but how the thief could come at any moment. And he does it, what? When the people aren't prepared. <laughs> a thief doesn't break into your house when everybody's out there in the middle of the room, right? The thief comes when he thinks either nobody's there or everybody's asleep. Unless they're really horrific thieves, right? Most of the time. He's comparing himself to a thief, not the evil practice, but the unexpectedness of when he will come. Jesus could come at any minute. And he does this throughout Scripture. Look, Matthew 24, 43. Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been there on alert and would not have allowed this, his house to be broken into. He compares himself to that again later on in Matthew 24. And this is later. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul does it. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. In other words, though you know that it'll come unexpectedly, you're ready. You're prepared. 2 Peter 3.10 But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away in a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now I know all of you out there are going, what? Is that what's going to happen the very first time he retires? It sees the whole picture is what Peter's doing here. And then Revelation 3.3, he's talking to the churches. He says, so remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will know at what hour I will come to you. And you will not know, rather. Sorry. So, how should we be ready? How are we ready and prepared for Christ to come? Well, we're prepared if we value him. More than this. We're prepared if we seek him. Not this world. We're prepared if we think about what matters. If we put to death fleshly thoughts. Then we're ready. But for all of us. The most important thing for us to be ready. Is listen closely. To be right with him. To be right with him. What do I mean by that? Are you his child? Listen, if you are not a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not ready and you do not want him to come back. Trust me. Let me describe this real quickly so everybody understands. God is a holy and just and righteous God. We are all born sinful creatures. We are born wanting to take care of ourselves and to glorify and edify ourselves. We are born thinking of ourselves. And in the, at the same time, we are rejecting this holy God that made us and gives us breath and life. Folks, listen to me carefully. Everybody in this room deserves judgment from this holy God. We deserve to be separated from, from him forever because we do not thank him and praise him all the time, which we should be doing. All of us 
are like sheep who have gone astray. All of us deserve His judgment. But God. God did something amazing. He sent His Son. His Son came to this earth and He lived a perfect life. That's what we're talking about. He's talking this great. He's revealing Himself in this sermon. He revealed Himself in obedience. Obedience to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He went all the way to the cross. And He died on a cross. The perfect one for the imperfect ones. The just for the unjust people. And He took the wrath that we deserve on Himself. He bore the sins of many on Him. He was crushed. He died. Was put in a grave. And rose from the dead three days later. Demonstrating that He is Lord, Master, and He has defeated death and sin. He ascended to heaven and He now rules and reigns from heaven. He is there. He is King. He is Master. He is Lord of all. And one day He will return for His own. Do you know this Lord? I'm not talking, do you know these facts? Because you've heard these facts. Many of your kids have probably already heard these facts. Have you trusted in Christ alone? Have you turned from your sins and trusted in Him to be your Lord and Master? Have you gave your life to Christ? Have you valued Him above all else? Have you forsaken your life and given it to Him? If you are, and if you have, you've begun to be ready. Now it's the process of continuing to stay ready. And we continue to stay ready as we what? Continue to look to Him. Confessing our sins, forsaking our sins, continuing to trust in Him. Where are you? Are you ready? Or if He came tonight, would it be shocking? Would you face judgment? Or would you face reclining at the table of the master. I'm not an altar call guy, but I will tell you this. If you have not turned to Christ, don't wait another minute. If God is beginning to convict you of your sin and your need of him, turn and trust in Christ now. I call you, I beg you, trust in Christ. If you're not sure of that, and you're not sure of your standing with Him, I'm available. Most of us at this church are available to just talk to you. Please don't wait. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ. You are Lord, you are Master, you are Holy, you are Good, you are Savior. Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to look to you. Help us to trust you. Help us to put to death sin. Help us to delight in you. 
for you're worthy of all of our delight. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.